You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Augustine Fuentes, who is a professor of anthropology at Princeton University. He's also the author of numerous books, most recently a book called Why We Believe, Evolution and the Human Way of Being. He's also got a book called uh, The Creative Spark, How Imagination Made Humans Exceptional, and this other book called Race, Monogamy, and Other Lies They Told You, Busting Myths About Human Nature. Welcome, Augustine. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Well, let's start off with this most recent book, which you called Why We Believe. And of course, when I read this, when I started reading this, I didn't know exactly what to expect because belief as a word can take on so many meanings, right? In the, in the broadest sense, we, when the mouse is navigating the maze, we can say that the mouse believes that the making a right-hand turn is going to get him the cheese and so forth. That's a very crude definition of the word believe, but you have a lot more richness to this word, right? In fact, you are define belief in a way that is is really kind of uniquely human and which is about levels of abstraction which you believe other creatures and perhaps even our ancestors other homo may have been incapable of so could you talk a bit about this idea of belief and, and how does it differ from say culture right the way anthropologists will typically talk about culture I think it's really important to sort of set at the outset that probably lots of different organisms commit to perceptions and think through stuff and are really incredible, right? So we can talk about other organisms, but I'm really interested in sort of over the last two million years, the particular patterns, the distinctive changes that happen in our lineage and, and how that might help us understand today, right? What we do now and what we do in the future. So when I talk about belief, I'm not just talking about like, sort of an understanding uh, like the mouse in the maze or sort of weighing of options or the absorption of perception information. For me, when I'm talking about human belief, what I'm talking about is this ability to take life experiences, sort of understandings, information, imaginings, possibilities, ideologies, and to put them together in such a manner that they become wholly real, fully felt and experienced by the individual, right? So so believing in something is committing wholly and fully to the reality of that something, even if you don't have any tangible, like it's not a material thing, right? Um, now, most people, when they think of belief in this way, think only about religion. But what I'm asserting here is that this capacity shows up well before religion does and plays a central role in many critical, distinctively human things, religion, economics, love, politics, right? Belief is this capacity humans have to commit wholly and fully to this mix of experience, imagination, ideology, thoughts, and ideas, and to make it real for them. So the punchline is beliefs are real for those who hold them. And if we don't understand that, we're not going to understand the human. Right. So this is not simply about making inferences about the world, right? And sort of saying, okay, I fully believe in, you know, in, in gravity, right? For instance, like uh, I, I fully believe that if I drive my car into a wall, I'm probably not going to survive, right? So it's not about assenting to 
hypotheses or propositions about the world, but it's about almost, is it like what John Searle refers to as social reality, that sort of thing? It's even more than that. So it is a Searlean social reality. The other things like the gravity and driving a car off into a wall and being a problem, that's understanding, right? That's putting together cause and effect, even in complex ways. And Searle's sort of social reality is like, look, what people do. It's like Bourdieu's habitus. And, you know, there are oh, many philosophers have said, you know, the human mind creates this sort of reality in which we exist. I'm going a step further because I'm going to push against the philosophical only take on this and talk about human neurobiology, human evolutionary processes, human physiology, in addition to the sort of philosophical reflection and context. So, so when we believe something, it is real. Right. And that means that our behaviors, our actions, our perceptions are structured by this reality in which we invest. And I would like to suggest that it's this capacity, right, to invest, to believe in things that are not material and non tangible that ha- plays a huge role in human society. And I think you use the term niche construction. We evolve to basically be fit within the niche in which we find ourselves. And I guess for, you know, some organisms, they don't do a whole lot to kind of shape that niche, right? That niche is, is given, not made. But humans, you know, from the moment we're born, we're, we're stepping into a, a niche that was in very major ways shaped by kind of other humans. So is that sort of, how is our niche construction different from, say, the niche construction of termites and, and, and bower birds and, you know, all, all the others that, that build niches? There, there's so, so many animals, and this is one sort of contemporary evolutionary theory, uh, an aspect of contemporary evolutionary theory that's so important is that we recognize that it's not like evolution is not just about the environment forcing animals to change or animals having to deal with the environment or dying, going extinct. It's really about this mutual relationship between organisms and their environment. So niche construction is actually quite common at different levels. So for example, you know, earthworms, you throw earthworms into a soil where there weren't worms before and earthworms do their thing, right? Which means burrowing through the soil, ingesting that soil, passing it through their digestive tract and changing both the chemical and physical structure of the soil. And so what happens is once a bunch of earthworms of one generation live within some soil, they radically change the chemistry and structure of that soil. So it's actually better for their offspring. Their offspring have an easier time, like they're better in that niche. And so that's a kind of simplistic niche construction or beavers, right? Beavers make these dams, which change the water flow and water temperature and provide the safety for their offspring, stuff like that. So a lot of organisms change the like relationship with the ecology and the ecology itself. And that feeds back on changing them. Humans though, I mean, our niches are not just sort of changing our ecology. Like we wear clothes to deal with climate stuff. We build buildings, right? Uh, You know, pipe natural gas into our buildings so we can stay warm, build fires, things like that. But we also create things like, you know, in the contemporary landscape, iPhones, for example, and social media and, you know, emails and the ability to transfer money around the world or even economic systems. Humans don't just build ecological niches, right? We do that. But we also build social, perceptual, institutional, and structural niches that shape our very bodies and minds and lives. So the human niche is this dynamic set of processes that just has more layers and complexity than for most other organisms. And it's more dynamic. That is, humans are constantly being pushed on by the world and we're constantly pushing back. So there's this change over time. And that was a very long answer for that. But I think it's really important because like short, simple answers about humans are usually wrong. Right. But, but then does that mean that there's kind of a, a symbiosis and if you were to remove some 
elements of this culture, then you would essentially damage the fitness of the individual. I mean, I'm thinking, right. I mean, we know that termites have co-evolved with the bacteria in their gut. And if you give them antibiotics, right, they can't eat anymore. Right. So have we become so dependent on all the various aspects of, of belief that we've crafted over the years that if you uh, were to in somehow remove these, these beliefs, this would impair us. I mean, obviously you no, can't remove all beliefs, but if you, if there are beliefs that have, you know, think in terms of religion, right. For most, most of our history, we've been religious. If you remove some of those elements of religiosity from people, do they then have to, you know, figure out how to adapt to this new environment, so to speak? So, I mean, yes and no. That's a long and very complicated question, but let me let me jump in with the end of it first. So you, you said if we move religiosity, sort of this religiousness, you can't actually remove that from humans because humans have the capacity to be religious. Now, whether they're religious or not, that depends on their context, their upbringing, their individual experience. So what you can do is someone grows up, let's say, as an evangelical Christian, right? That is real for them. That structures their mind, the way they see the world. But let's say they have a set of life experiences, meet some people, and they no longer, they move out of that. They don't believe that anymore. They haven't lost their ability to sort of believe in more than the here and now. They're just shifting where that goes and how that works, right? So, so the short answer is when you redo someone's belief systems or structures, that can have huge traumatic effects or it can actually shift them to an even better state. I mean, it really depends on the context there. But this, the bigger picture is what you mentioned earlier, culture, right? So belief and concepts and ideologies and practices, these are part of the human culture. Other organisms have culture, but human culture, right? It's institutional, it's linguistic, it's symbolic. It's this really complex mess that we're swimming in all the time, right? The, the psychologist, Michael Tomasello says, fish are born expecting water, humans are born expecting culture, right? So, you know, we are shaped by culture before we're out of the womb and we are continually shaped by, but we also shape it. So there's that sort of real interesting dynamic. So it's not like if you pull a piece out, everything breaks. But by shifting a cultural dynamic or a belief system or a piece of that system, you can get individuals or groups radically shifting. And I think we can see that going on right now. You can see different kinds of commitments to different types of belief radically changing economic, political systems and, and health, even, you know, health outcomes, right? You know, this whole issue right now with masks, right? This is about belief. It's not about the actual data. And it has huge impacts for humanity. Yeah. I mean, think about the germ theory, right? I mean, germ theory is, it's not something that you, you experience sort of in a, in a firsthand way, right? It would be almost impossible to imagine that a mouse has a germ theory, right? Now, presumably they would have behaviors that could evolve that would, you know, minimize their exposure to it, but they would, you know, they don't have this belief in this invisible, right, force that is communicated through the air, right? But we can kind of readily adopt this belief once, I think most people probably believe it simply because, you know, everybody else believes it, but right. it's- Which is where most beliefs come from. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So how much heterogeneity is there, right? So I, I've seen definitions of culture going back, I don't know, to Montesquieu or wherever, where anything that's heterogeneous, that well, that's, that's culture. And anything which is common across all humans is, that must be nature. And obviously this is a false dichotomy, but the level of heterogeneity is really endogenous to some degree, right? So you know, I was talking to Celia Hayes, uh, who, who was saying, you know, uses the term cognitive gadgets about things that we all take for granted such as theory of mind but if you kind of poke deeper you see that not every 
culture thinks of theory of mind in exactly the same way. So how much heterogeneity can we tolerate within the sort of cultural beliefs? Yeah, no, so Hayes' uh, cultural gadget, I mean, the cognitive gadgets is really interesting, right? And I think a very important contribution. Um, I'd actually expand on some of those things in certain ways, but we can talk about that later. Um, but the, your, your question about heterogeneity is really important because, I mean, the bottom line of anthropological study of understanding human cultures, right, through ethnography and across time through deep sort of archaeological and evolutionary studies is that the following punchline, there are many successful ways to be human. I mean, that, and it's, it's shocking how many ways there are to succeed at being us. Um, and, and I think we, we gloss over that in the contemporary world because we don't see much of it. You know, a lot of that has disappeared. A lot of it's not really recognized. But even in a contemporary society like in the United States, there's a bunch of ways to live together. There's a bunch of ways to find partners. There's a bunch of ways to sort of think about what community means. And, and all of them are successful in the sense that people do them and continue living and reproducing and engaging. And so I would say there's an enormous amount of heterogeneity in the human possibilities for better and worse, right? Sometimes this is great and it's a wonderful thing. Other times it's really bad. It can either, you know, dis distract us and pull us apart or sometimes it can bring us together. My main concern though, with this sort of concept of culture and biology Right. Sort of what and it's everyone agrees, nature, nurture. It's not really two things. Right. It's sort of not that simple. But what people don't understand is that not only is it not that simple, it's simply not true. That is, there is no biology without culture or no culture without biology. Right. That whole brain in the jar, like it, you can't ever have a brain in the jar and ask questions about mind because brains always have bodies. Bodies always have physiological systems and bodies are always in interrelation with other bodies. So it's this level of complexity. And, and so I like to talk about bioculture, right? So we can talk about cultural things like some of these cognitive gadgets, right? Some of these, this theory of mind, for example, um, different societies have it in different ways and the way in which they perceive of what a person is and whether humans or other organisms are persons, that actually shapes the way we see the world, think about the world and act. Physiologically, that shapes our hormone structures, our neurobiology. It also shapes how we write and how we sing songs about things and how we talk about trees versus people. Um, so I, I'm much more interested in like what people do than trying to artificially disentangle like what is biology and what is culture. Yeah, I mean, I think that you dig into the neurobiology a bit in the book and you make this claim, which in some sense is, is trivial, but in another sense is actually very profound, which is that all beliefs are encoded physically, right? And that they shape the actual physiology. Apparatus of, of perception. Yeah. Now, look, I mean, there's one sense in which people talk about embodied cognition, right? Which is like, okay, you know, you experience the world as a, as a body. But I think you're making a very different point, which is that your experience of the world fundamentally shapes the, the physiology of how you think and, and how you believe. And those beliefs are encoded physically. Yeah, yeah. And the, the neuropsychologist Shi Hui Han has done some great work on this. And a number of neurobiologists and psychologists have shown how perceived experience and lived experience actually, that in fact does structure the way in which your neurobiologies connect, right? How the chemical and electric pathways that work in your brain and throughout your system function. So, as uh, Greg Downey and Daniel Lendy say, experience becomes biology literally in the neural sense, right? Our experience is laid down as chemical and electrical pathways. 
which then refire and shape other chemical and electrical pathways, which impact things like perception, right? So uh, I love this sort of notion. If you were to take two twin, identical twins, right? Basically same DNA, raise one in, you know, Northern Alaska and raise one in sort of central Brazil, bring them together when they're 36 years old, show them a picture, give them some salmon, you know, put them both in a room that's 70 degrees Fahrenheit. They will each tell you totally and honestly, completely different lived experiences of those events, even though they have the same taste, but you know, the same biologically, the same stuff because the biology works differently because of who they are and where they lived. Yeah, I like the example, you don't use this, but it's, it's one of my favorites about calico cats. You take right. twins, you put them in the womb and they're going to come out with a different pattern, right? Yeah. Almost. And part of that's biological, but in humans, it goes even the next level. And this is what, true with all animals. But in humans, you take those same genetics, not only are they not going to be the same, you know, biologically, there's going to be variants even with the exact same DNA, but you're going to get radically different ways in which their biology works or they interpret their biological interfaces because of the culture in which they live, right? So, you know, if you grow up eating raw salmon and you've never had raw fish in your life, I tell you right now, the chemical entering your mouth is going to be exactly the same, but your responses are going to be radically different. Mm -hmm. So you're an anthropologist and you have some, there's lots in, in your books, right, uh, where you look at artifacts, and you're looking at these artifacts to try to find some record of beliefs, right? And unfortunately, right, beliefs don't, you know, they typically don't leave a record behind. Most cultural creations are ephemeral in the form of songs and stories and, and so forth. But you do find in some physical artifacts some hints and suggestions about human belief. And I think you use Charles Peirce's categorization. Could you talk a bit about that? Like when, when we look at the, some people refer to them as fertility figures, right? What, what exactly are we looking for? What are we seeing there? So I think there's a, an important division here. So we do, beliefs do are recorded material in writing or in, you know, recordings of me, but, but all of the sort of materiality of beliefs in that literal sense, like here's what I believe, I wrote it in a book. Um, that's recent, right? Super recent. So we go back four, five, six, seven thousand years, a hundred thousand years, five hundred thousand years, a million years. H how do we? You, what, what could you possibly do to ask this kind of question in the scientific format? Uh, it's difficult, but they're hints, right? And these hints are these things that you're referring to. Uh, Mark Kissel and I, and, and a number of other scholars, have, have pointed out that we can look at these material objects made by earlier human, right, our ancestors, and we can infer that they have meaning that they were made to represent or mean certain things, or at least they were made to evoke certain kinds of sensual like reactions, right? Emotional, perceptual reactions. And here we're borrowing from the semiotician, right? Charles Peirce, this idea, most people know his trichotomy of symbol index icon, right? Where like a symbol is something that is given meaning by the group that makes it like a stop sign, right? Stop signs don't mean anything. But we all say this red octagon with the word stop and it means stop, right? Or red lights mean stop. That, that's a symbol because the group culturally agrees that that's what it means. Um, then you have, you know, indexes, which are things that sort of indicate something, you know, like, I mean, a weather vane could be an index in some ways, you know, it tells you the, which way the wind is blowing. And then you have icons, right? Things that stand for other things, flags and stuff like that. That's Purse's well-known trichotomy. He's got another trichotomy. He's got actually two others that we're really interested in because 
to use, to say something as a symbol, like those Venus figurines that you referred to, most people say these symbolize fertility. We don't know that. The only way you can know what a symbol means is to be with the people who agreed on what that symbol is and ask them, what does this mean? Other than that, we can't tell. But what we can tell about these Venus figurines that were appeared between about 18,000 and 30,000 years ago in a wide area of what is today Central and Eastern Europe is we know that they were made in a fairly consistent fashion, that they were moved around, that they were held, and that today in us, they evoke visual and perceptual consistent patterns, right? We, we can describe them and see, we see them as female representations. We see them as large body forms or very tall body forms. We can identify different uh, parts of the body and they, they do something for us, right? They stimulate something. And so what we've argued is that that is an example of meaning making. And so rather than talk about symbols in the past, what we can talk about is repeated examples of humans taking an object, reshaping that object to a new form that meant something to them. And we can tell it meant something to them because it evokes consistent responses and is made repeatedly in that same way over time. And so when we talk about belief in the past, we can't get at beliefs, but we can get at some of the material indications, which are these meaning-making materials, these examples of what people call art or symbol, and I would call just literally the material evidence of meaning-making in the past. So how do we explain that with an evolutionary model, right? I mean, when you look at how much investment societies put into meaning-making and even you know religious constructions, right? So early settlements, there's massive investment in things like temples or Edward Slingerland writes about massive investment in alcohol creation. And I don't know the extent to which that is connected to, to meaning making, but why? So there's got to, is this a group selection story where communities that, that have complex architectures of meaning will outcompete those that don't? Is there, is there some kind of individual level story, right, where the folks who are in the meaning creation business have better mating success, right? Like, how do we explain how this would give rise to evolutionary kind of lock-in? Where, where does that come from? Well, so here, I mean, one of the problems is it, these sort of massive investments in meaning making, whether they're monumental architecture, whether they're tons of figurines, whether it's alcohol, which is early on probably associated with a wide variety of festivals and ritual behaviors. So any of those things take a lot of energy, take a lot of investment, and don't have a clear like one-to-one -one correlation with reproduction or with individual reproduction or with group success. Uh, and, and, and they rarely do, right? And I, so I think one of the questions here we have to say is, well, do we need to explain this as a single trait that has some selective benefit or can we step back and see this as part of this complex cultural process that affects, you know, reproduction, health, community bonding, fighting with other communities or connecting with other communities? Can this be this dynamic assemblage that's doing all of these different kinds of things in different ways? And so one of the problems is we've always been like, you know, we go out into the world and uh, we're like, oh, look, here's a rock. Um, is it a stone tool? Like, did it mean something? Um did this specific rock do X and did that give you, you know, this benefit? Is that the rock on your book? Yeah. <laughs> not this one, no, it's right? actually a different one. <laughs> okay. that, that's a great stone tool, right? And that those stone tools, like the one on the front of the book, right? We ask, wow, what function, how do they make life better? How do they make people reproduce more, what have you? That's a problem because in many cases, the individual tools, those individual things didn't. But what did make a difference 
over time for our species or for populations is the concept of a tool or the technology or the actual process by which tools were made, shared, and transmitted, or the actually use of the tool in a social kind. You see what I mean? It's not just like one trait by itself. These things are all interconnected. And so when we try to explain something as complicated and dynamic culturally as a meaning-making object or a ritual building, the simple explanation, oh, this helped us bond people together. That, you know, that's probably right, but that's not it. And so I think we need to go beyond the sort of what function did this serve to how did people who made this use it? How did it affect them? And what was it connected to in all the other things in their lives? So what is the dynamic niche processes rather than just did having big central buildings make you better than the group over there? Maybe, maybe not. That's actually a very complex question. Well, you also talk about trade and exchange, and I'm an economist, so it seems obvious why exchange would be a good thing, right, and benefit folks. But, but I think your, your point is that anthropological evidence seems to suggest that the motivation for, for trade, at least the, the subjective experience of trade, is not driven by mutual economic benefit as much as it is by the construction of social ties and, and meetings and so forth, right? Does it really matter kind of what the, I mean, economists like to say, well, just ignore what people are thinking and just focus on what they're doing, right? You know, <laughs> so, you know, whatever, yeah. who cares what they believe, right? Why, why is it so important that we, we kind of understand what the subjective experience is? So here's, I mean, this is a whole lot of conversation, but here's one of my main, that's one of my main critiques of neoclassic economics, right? I mean, I, I, I can't say it doesn't matter what people believe, it's just what they do because what they believe totally structures what they do, right? Um, and, and belief matters. And so the, the what if of neoclassical economics, I'm not, not, I, I can't get on board with. There's, there's a lot of other stuff. But let's go back to this notion of exchange, right? And, and I like the term exchange rather than trade because trade's an economic relationship. Exchange though, this idea of sharing tools or pieces of ochre or pieces of information, we're getting really good evidence that three, four, 500,000 years ago, these kinds of informative or material exchanges were more widespread across populations, between populations than we thought. Um, and what this means, right, is that sharing of information between groups is probably really important in setting up the dynamic for humans to get more and more complicated, right, to get bigger groups and to do these kinds of things. So Marcel Mauss, the sociologist, and many, many, many people in many societies that are not sort of tied to market economics that I've spoken to told me this. So it's not just our philosophers or academics who say this. I think most people understand this. Most exchanges amongst humans, when, when goods are given and received, most of that for the human, much of human history has not been about valuation or reciprocity, but rather about particular kinds of relation building, right? And I, I think that's really important. Once we get valuation, of exchange in there, that's trade or barter or, you know, a clear economic system. And, and that emerges. I mean, we can see that in the archaeological record, especially over the last five, 8,000 years. We can start to see valuation. We can start to see, you know, systemic, particularly economic and, and even monetary systems emerging. But people, and we still do this today, like we give stuff and receive stuff all the time without a direct expectation of reciprocity or valuation, right? We give gifts to the people we love and care about, not because even though some people would argue because you want something from them, but that's not true. 
Actually, we give gifts without any expectation return all the time. We, we give love and assistance and all these kinds of things. And so what it looks like is that pretty early on, at least by three or 400,000 years ago, groups of early humans were sharing information and materials across much wider spaces than we thought before, which means something about intergroup relations and connections. And it probably means that once we, unlike most animals, were able to figure out how to get along across different groups and populations, get information from them and share information with them, that changed the niche of information sharing and capacity and allowed us, I think, to then ratchet up to these kinds of larger institutionalized organizational structures that, that economists and politicians are so interested in. Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at Silicon Valley, right, um, it's it's almost impossible to understand the culture of the place without reference to something that's quasi-religious in a way, because there's this whole notion of pay it forward, which it's completely different from the kind of tit for tat, right? Where it's the people you actually, if you observe people and just watch how they behave, they'll do things without any expectation of direct reciprocity, but it's rather like, I'm going to, I'm going to throw this into the mix, you know, like a potlatch and I'm just, presuming that something's going to come out on the other end, right? And that seems to be one of the secrets of success to Silicon Valley, but it's it's not explainable through through game theory. It's not explainable through kind of traditional methods of reciprocity. Yeah, I, I love it when, you know, and actually potlatch is a really interesting case study because everyone does value stuff, but it's not value, material value. It's social value, right? And so you have to be very careful how much you give or how much you take. or And, and that's that's a lot of the human thing, right? But it's very interesting to say that game theory doesn't get us there because game theory is fascinating. It's a great model and it helps us think through a lot of different kinds of things. But also, especially economic games, like they don't work for lots of people around the world because they're like, okay, here, I'm going to give you X amount and you have to decide how much you're going to give to your cousin and this unknown person over here. And, and you know, the assumption is, okay, well, I give all to this unknown person. You're like, why would you do that? Your cousin's related. And it's like, well, because culturally this is what we, you know. The thing is, culture doesn't work well in a rational model um, because humans are not necessarily rational about valuation. Our rationality is relational. And so I think what in a given culture, in a given society, what are the relations? How are those relations structured? That gives us a greater insight into how people are going to interact with one another in an, even an economic or political sense. And that relationality is structured by the belief systems and cultural histories of that group. Right. So I want to get back to, if we're trying to think about what is sort of the prototypical example of this unique human capacity for belief. I mean, anything which smacks of the, the transcendent is sort of, I think, uniquely human. And, and that could be religion. It could be other sorts of transcendence. Romantic love is, I guess, sort of an extension of that. While I think most people in contemporary academia in the U.S. would say that they're not religious in any formal way. To get back to your earlier point, in, in a sense, we, we all are religious in a broader way. Could you dig into that? Like, what do, what do we mean by that? Does that simply mean part of it is normativity, right? So it's impossible to not have normativity. As a scientist, you can say, I'm going to separate the positive from the normative, and we're just going to focus on the positive. But as a human being, I mean, there's no way that you can shed normativity, right? I mean, you wouldn't, you'd never get out of bed in the morning, right? I, yeah. How do you, no, uh, I mean, we are, we're biased as heck, right? I mean, that, that's what humans do, right? A good scientist, you know, you always try to be aware of your biases. Well, but is that I, a I bias? Is, I mean, do we, do, should we think of that as a yeah, bias? Yeah. Or? 
Yeah. I think it's a kind of bias, right? Because it structures our actions and perception. I mean, we have underlying subconscious and conscious assumptions about normative, right? About what is the world and how is the world, how does the world work? Those are partially because of material and perceptual realities, you know, that we navigate. They're also partially because of what we believe about the world to be, right? And so those things I think are always mixed together. But let's think about this idea of transcendence and religiousness. And, and I think scientists are a great example because many scientists would be, you know, love to call themselves atheists, right? Atheists because they don't believe in a particular institutionalized theology, right? If they're not Christian or Muslim or Buddhist or uh, Taoist or uh, Islamic, I'm sorry, you said that, uh, Jewish or what have you. But what's really interesting is humans all have the capacity for religiousness, which is this ability to sort of sense more than the here and now, to believe that there are greater goods or higher callings, ideologies, draws that are not just about the immediate material lived experience, but about some kind of transcendent moment or some capacity, right, to be more than just about your body and yourself, right? Um, so, for example, many scientists do what they do for the greater good. They will say that, right? It's, I have this idea, this is going to, you know, change the world. This is going to improve humanity. Okay, that's a, that's a transcendent religious commitment. And so the problem is people think, religion, which are these institutions with theological structures and beliefs and philosophies and ritual practices is the same as religiousness. What I like to say is that those are different things. Religions deploy, draw on humans' capacity for religiousness as capacity for belief and commitment and structure it in certain ways and certain beliefs and certain rituals. But all humans have that capacity and we do it in many different ways. And that's why I think it's ridiculous, this argument, you know, or atheists kinder or religious people kinder or who's more moral or those arguments you just go in circles because they're the wrong questions to ask right it's what commitments do people have how do they embody those commitments and how do their beliefs structure the way in which those commitments are are real for them right and i think you you refer to you use this phrase i think what you got it from terry eagleton right which is belief is uh, like falling in love with an idea now presumably that's a subset of beliefs, but your commitments, right, that define who you are in a way, in a very fundamental way. Yeah. It's so nice, though, because that idea of falling in love with something, and I think love itself is a kind of belief system, but it, it's a great metaphor because, like, to really believe something is to be all in. It's just to be overwhelmingly there with that thing and committed to it. And that's, it's really impressive. And I think if we understand that beliefs are that powerful and that true for people, we can ask better questions about really problematic events like the divisions here in the United States right now, like this war in the Ukraine. I mean, I think rather than thinking about people fooling themselves or being lied to, I think we got to start with the position that people believe what they believe and those beliefs are real for them. How do we understand where those beliefs come from? How do we understand how those beliefs structure what people do? How can we understand ways, if we want to, to modify those beliefs? I, I think that's, that's the better standing point. I think too many people, for example, many of my colleagues, would argue that religious people are being fooled, right? You know, uh, many evolutionary biologists would say, you know, Dawkins or someone like that would say, you know, religious people are fools. They're just, they're being duped. That is the worst, most ignorant assertion. People of faith are just that. They have a faith. They really wholly believe and commit to something. So you need to understand why that's the case, how that's the case, and what that means for them. That lived experience of faith is actually a really important central component into understanding why people do what they do. 
Well, Jillian Tett in her book on anthropology, she said anthropology is helps you to understand the other, but it also helps you to understand your, yourself, right? By giving you the capacity to kind of stand outside and and then apply like a, a Geertzian, you know, analysis to your, to yourself. So if you do that exercise and imagine yourself to be an, an anthropologist from the 28th century and you're plunking yourself down into Princeton, New Jersey or Berkeley, California, and you're surveying the landscape of the educated elites, right, <laughs> that we all belong to, how would you describe the, the religion of, of this population, right? How would you describe the beliefs? Would you look at them and, and just see them as equally religious to the folks who came before, except that religion has sort of a different set of commitments and a, and a different set of beliefs? Or does it actually make sense to say, no, no, these people are kind of less religious, more secular? Like, does that whole idea of religious versus secular even make sense? Or is there like a, a law of thermodynamics that applies to, <laughs> to, to these higher level beliefs? So, I mean, you know, the religious secular, that's a recent invention, right? So, and it still doesn't even hold for much of the world, right? In many places where I've worked uh, in the world, when I tried to explain, you know, there's religious, like where you go to church and you have that, and then you leave church and you go home and it's secular, it's a separate space. Much of the world, for many humans, they're like, what? You know, well, then do you just not believe in your religion or what's going on? Like for most people, like belief systems of life coexist, right? And there isn't a, a like religious and non-religious. So I, I think that that's important. Now, we can define religions as particular things with theologies and rituals and stuff like that. But, you know, from the future coming back here, you might look at my office and, you know, I just got a ton of books, right? Even though if you're a really good archaeologist and you're able to do it in the future, you'd extract all my digital files, right? Which is now where all of my papers and, and books and writings are. And you would find this incredible devotion, this ritual commitment to going over and over and over the works of many people and trying to extract information from, I mean, I sound just like, you know, one of these religious scholars plowing through books, trying to find the meaning of God, right? And I'm actually, you know, not doing that. I'm doing something else. But the ritual, the practice is very similar. And so I think that's where you see some of those similarities in, in the sort of academic world, our, our devotion to knowledge and this ideology, this belief that increased amount of knowledge, synthesizing knowledge, and trying to follow sort of trajectories of knowledge and understanding gets us somewhere. I believe that actually, but that is a belief system, right? I mean, one could argue looking around the world today, I don't know how much good all this knowledge has done, but uh, I still choose to believe that knowledge is power if, right, we have it and use it. Well, I think there's some serious implications for persuasion that are implied in, in your work. And you, you have this example of what you did in Ubud or uh, Padang, Ubud, yeah, Padang, Padang Gal, 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 right? Could, could you yeah, talk, a bit, talk a bit about that? First of all, I thought anthropologists were supposed to just sit there with their notebooks and, and not, you know, not, not interfere with the, uh, you know, what the, like journalists, right? Journalists, if they see somebody who's shot on the sidewalk, they're not supposed to call the ambulance. They're supposed to just take a, pick a picture and walk away. Right. So, so tell me a bit about this, this experience that you, you had there. I mean, one, one of the first things that, that I think is, is critical to point out is that any human being, if you see someone shot on the sidewalk, you should go help. Right? <laughs> That's a good thing. 
But this whole idea of the neutral observer, that was never true, right? By inserting yourself, if you're not from a place, by inserting yourself and hanging out with people and watching them all the time, you're making a change. You're having an impact. And yeah, so I remember, I remember reading anthropologists, uh, Nap, Nap Chagdon would talk about, you know, right. <laughs> get, get into all sorts of scuffles yep. with the, yep. with the yep. uh, Yanomamo. Now, you want to be careful, right? You want to think about what those things, but you want to do, and here's what I would argue the contemporary anthropological lens is, you want to collaborate with the people that you're working with, right? That you're studying and that are you're being part of and respecting and most importantly, listening to. So anthropological engagement is, is seen as a collaboration, not an extraction of information, but actually a deep hanging out with and a conversation with those people to hear what their words are and what their perspectives are and how you can think with that to tell a larger story. So I, I think that's really important. So for example, in Bali, Indonesia, this story that, that I related in this uh, place called, most people know it as Ubud, it's actually the village is called Parang Tegal. And there's a there's a, a, a funerary temple complex. It's a three little, uh, there's a one big temple and then a sort of a cremation area and a, a couple smaller temples. And there's a big forest around there. The Balinese Hinduism frequently has sort of the preservation of forests or other natural phenomena around their temples. And in this forest live a bunch of monkeys. And at the time, this was a long time ago, um, it was a tourist site, but not a ton of tourists, um, but it was a, a, a use site for the local villages, right? They had they were cremations there. They had regular religious ceremonies there and all these kinds of things. And something that was very concerning uh, to them at the time when, when I was there sort of starting this collaborative project with them, they're like, look, the forest is dying, right? The forest is dying. It's in bad shape. They had their ideas as to why, but being the scientist and, and trained in e ecology, they asked, could you, you know, do, do some science here and tell us what's going on? So, so we did. And, and we found out it was pretty clear what I thought is that, you know, when they'd switched from organic packaging to plastic, uh, as, as happened across the 1980s in that, in that region, early 90s, there's just people would just toss the plastic around. And, and actually, the whole upper layer of the soil was embedded with plastic and a variety of other sort of refuge stuff that wasn't degrading and was killing the soil. So the plants were dying, the trees were dying. So I go back to the, the village elder who, who I was working with, just an, a crazy, uh, an incredible uh, individual. Pak Achin was his name, or Mr. Achin. And I say, look, here's, here's what we found. You know, the plastic is killing everything. And he said, oh, that's what I figured. This is really good. So I said, look, well, we can fix this, right? We can, you know, truck in some, some topsoil. Let, let's work on this. We can sort of do this sort of ecological monitoring, get this forest back in good shape for the, you know, for the temples and for the monkeys, for you, for everyone. That'll be great. But, but I said to him, the thing you got to do is you have to make it illegal to throw away plastic. You can't just have people tossing away plastic because that's the problem. So just make a new law, you know, just tell them you can't throw away plastic. And so he laughs. And, and I'm like, what, what, what's so funny about that? He's like, you're right. No, we do, we do need to do this. It's like, but if I make a law and it just says, don't throw away plastic, that's not going to change anyone's behavior, right? Because that law means nothing. Their community's practice is to have stuff, unwrap it, eat the thing and toss the stuff away. The only thing that's going to change their practice, their habits, the way their culture is to draw on something within that culture, within those belief systems that makes sense to them as to why this change is needed. And so he mused and he's sort of joking. He's like, what we need to do is figure out, you know, the Balinese pantheon, Balinese Hinduist pantheon of gods, you know, which god or goddess is, is the sort of, you know, the goddess of plastic or, or the, the demon of plastic. How do we figure that out? And he didn't mean invent a, a fake deity of plastic. What he meant was, are there existing beliefs and patterns and ritual traditions that we can draw on to connect to this and make sense. And it turns out there were. This is Balinese practice uh, called Trihita Karana that has to do with relationships with nature and the spirits and the animals and the people. And so they were able to craft, and we uh, participate along with them, a sort of way in which to talk about 
the, the forest and the site and trash and all these kinds of things that made sense within the culture that we were engaging. And it worked. It worked incredibly well. And so I was just blown away by that because that taught me, I was going in, I was a young scientist. I'm like, no, I can science this and it'll be better. And he was like, not if it doesn't make sense in the belief systems, in the cultures of the local people who are actually having to make the change. And so that, that was a huge moment of uh, a humbling and learning moment and a recognition that what people believe has huge impacts in everything we do. Yeah. And I found, for instance, if, if an anthropologist were, and somebody will, I'm sure, do a careful anthropological study of how we responded to this recent pandemic, right? Because I think it's impossible to understand people's behavior as people responding to articles in, in science and nature, right? I mean, if you, if you look at, for instance, mask wearing behavior, if you're from Berkeley, you would wear the mask in your car by yourself and you'd wear it in the shower and, you know, you know, running in the woods. And then in, in Florida, be two feet away from somebody and you'd have, you'd be coughing and you'd be, you wouldn't be, you know, like, I mean, it doesn't seem like the, the motivation of anybody was a carefully calibrated response to models of disease transmission. It was, it was more like a communicating one's commitment to different principles, whether it's the I'm committed to the public good and, and public health. I'm committed to individual freedom and resisting the authority of the state. And I don't think there's any other way really to understand so much of the, the behavior that we saw, except through this kind of lens of, of powerful commitments. Belief is, is, is the key to understanding this. And that's what I wish people would realize. And, and I mean, it's very frustrating. I'm incredibly frustrated because like the data are there. They've been there the whole time. They're extremely clear, but you know, data do nothing by themselves, right? Data are filtered through belief systems and communication systems. So one, I would, I'm going to, you know, dump a huge amount of fault at our government and public health and the CDC. They've just been really bad at messaging largely because they hadn't thought about belief systems, right? They haven't thought about what the diversity of the United States looks like and how are we going to get this across in different ways and formats. So the communication has been bad, but there's also been, and I would fault tons of people on all sides of everything here for just screaming at each other and not recognizing the truth of belief, right? People believe different things. Like the concept of freedom you just had, like it's completely alien to me, but this idea that there is a concept of belief in a stance where I can do whatever I want and that doesn't matter what that impact is, that that be uh, called freedom. I can't understand that, but I recognize it and it's true for people. And it's not like they're, they're, you know, I would consider them being horrible, but they don't consider them being horrible. They think they are actually committing to a particular perspective that is rational and is right. And understanding that is really important if you want to change it, right? And, and I do, I would like to change that belief but I respect the reality of it. And I think that's really important. Now, I wouldn't argue that all politicians using this are, are respecting the belief. I, I think there's a lot of manipulation of belief in this sense, but, but I, I, I think we can't get around, and the masks are a great example, we can't get around the notion that ritual, that belief, that perception drive behavior much more so than data, right? Facts don't matter. There are tons of facts out there. It's how the facts are interpreted and perceived. That's what matters. Are, are there limits to one's capacity to engage in this form of understanding others, right? I mean, are you necessarily a prisoner of the of the commitments that you make? Uh, can you kind of try them on, right? I mean, I think we as 
academics like to think that we can go native, so to speak. Because to understand a belief system, don't you have to kind of try it on for real? Or, or can you yeah. kind of understand it purely in, as an intellectual exercise? So I, I think not purely as an intellectual, but as an intellectual and emotional exercise. And I think that's really important. I think one thing that we're really lacking here is, is in, in, in the current uh, United States, in the current moment, is empathy. And I think academics lack a lot of empathy frequently. This, this idea that we need to, you, you can't be in someone else's mind if you don't share those beliefs, but you can empathize with them. You can listen. You can sort of get an idea, right? Remember the philosopher Thomas Nagel says, you can't think yourself into the mind of a bat. You can't fully think yourself into the mind of someone who believes something radically different from you, but you can listen to them. You can empathize with them. You can try to understand where they're coming from. And that gives you, I think, as close as possible that connection. Um, now, I mean, it's very difficult, right? Because I'm right now, you know, some of the work I'm doing, trying to do that with, with behaviors and beliefs I find repugnant and harmful and, and fully wrong. But it doesn't mean they're not real for the people who hold them. And I think that's, that's the challenge, right? How do you do that? And here's the anthropological you know, context of relativism that people misrepresent all the time. Relativism doesn't mean anything goes anytime. It means that if you want to understand what someone believes, what someone does, you need to understand it in terms of their culture, their society, their experience. That's what relativism means. And it's very difficult to do, but it's worth the shot. But I guess, I mean, this empathy is leans on the deep commonalities between these beliefs, right? I mean, the stronger you believe something, the more you... Between people. Yeah. So you don't have to even overlap in belief at all because the systemic processes by which we believe and sort of what humans do, there's what bonds us together, right? You don't have to agree with the details of the belief at all, but you can understand what it means to commit fully and wholly to something. But don't we also kind of exaggerate the differences in, in our beliefs at some level, like the more strongly we hold them? I mean, you should crack the egg on the small side and I crack the egg on the big right, side right, right, and then right, go to right. war over that, yeah. right? I mean, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, a lot of people ramp that up, right? Because yeah. that, that's, that's a way to do, I mean, this creation of identity is so important for humans. Um, and, and, and lately, I would argue, there's been an artificial, not artificial, a real, but it's real, but I, I don't think it, it's not a, an endemic uh, or necessary ramping up of identity. But lately, there's been a lot of this idea where identity trumps everything. Oh, I can't even use that word anymore. Identity, you know, outpaces or is more important than everything else. And, and I think that makes it harder, right? Because that means, well, I crack the egg this way, you crack the egg that way. That's I'm right, you're wrong. As opposed to, huh, we do this in two different ways. Here's what I do it. This is what I like. That's interesting that you do it that way. What's going on? You know, th those are very different perspectives. And I think that second approach is is lacking right now. Mm -hmm. Now, you have a chapter in the Why We Believe book, actually towards the end, on on love. And you describe love as sort of a belief. Now, I, I know some people would say that romantic love, at least, is a relatively, some would say it's a, really a modern phenomenon, right? It's kind of a transference of the religious impulse into the domestic sphere. But I mean, clearly love has been around for as long as yeah, humans have been around. Totally. Well, how does it make sense to think of love as something of a belief structure as opposed to, say, an emotion or a, uh, a sentiment? Well, I mean, it's all of those things. But, but really, so we can talk and I talk a little bit about the biology of love. Like, what is strong attachment mean, right? Humans are really good at incredible pair bonding, real commitment. 
um, to, to, to sexual partners, to non-sexual partners, to children, to other animals even. We have this in, in amazing ability to harness our sort of physiological, neuroendocrinological, you know, hormone processes into real attachment. Um, and so there's, there's this biological process. Love, however, the way we conceptualize it, whether it's romantic love or other kinds of love, we, we theorize it, right? We commit to different ways in which this sensation, this emotional, physiological reality maps out. And so when I say love is, is a way of kind of belief, it's that that I'm talking about, right? This different kinds of, of the way in which we believe that love should be prescriptive elements right so like if i love you here's what it means in terms of what i exactly. need to do right this is what a person who loves another person does right and it varies from culture that's the, the amazing thing is like love how it's defined varies although everywhere humans care deeply for one another and form unbelievably tight relationships so that happens but but how we describe it and what we expect about it that's the belief system and I find that really fascinating because it's dynamic and it changes. And it can also be very difficult, right? Because all these people with romantic love, there's always this expectation. Well, I mean, it's that's the thing that, ever, you know, in a certain cultural context, oh, well, I'm searching for romantic love. Well, what if that's not, what is that not your thing? Well, I like this idea of commitment as something which is uniquely human, right? So a dog- Deep, deep, a dog, deep bonding and commitment. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, not just commitment to other people, but commitment to an idea, right? So if, if I'm a dog, right, I'm always going to be, behavioralism is going to work, right? I'm going to be responding to local stimuli and so forth, but I'm not going to feel like, an, I'm not going to plant the flag and say, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm joining this group. I'm joining this company. I'm, I'm joining this club. I'm joining this team. And, and now I don't ask myself anymore, what do I feel like in the moment? I ask myself, like, what are my obligations, right? What have I just signed well, up for, right, to some degree? Yeah, actually, actually a dog, though, and that's an interesting example. Social mammals are complicated. A dog does that for a pack, though. Like, if you've had a dog or a pet, like, dogs double down. They're like, this is it. I'm the pack. I'm in the pack. That's a big thing of theirs. Now, they don't theorize about the pack. They don't, you know, have assertions about the pack. They don't make flags for the pack. We do all of that. So no, emotional commitment, that's a common thing with mammals. So we can do that. Humans, though, theorize it, right? Humans ritualize it. Humans do way more with it than we, just this emotional commitment to it, others. Right? We can decide, okay, exactly. I'm going to yeah. be loyal yeah. to this team yeah. and not that team, right? And not that one. Yeah, well, teams are a great example, you know? I mean, it is amazing to hook someone up to a variety of, of biofeedback machines and talk to them about their favorite sport and their team versus other teams. I mean, you can get, it looks, it looks amazing, right? If you're serious about sports, um, it looks like it's a life or death. Like your body looks like it's going through life or death decisions. That's, that's incredible. Mm -hmm. Now you have a new edition of this book out, uh, race, monogamy and, and other lies that they told you. Can you just talk a bit about that? Because I think it's about human nature. Human nature is kind of a, it's almost like a taboo topic now. I mean, no one's supposed to talk about human nature, but of course everyone has a, an implied, I mean, I, I remember when I was studying political philosophy, it said it's impossible to have a, a philosophy of, of anything if you don't have some implied view of, of human nature. So what are most people getting wrong about human nature? So this new version of it, right? The thing that I think most people are getting wrong about human nature is I tackle three aspects of it. But I think people are getting the term wrong. They say human nature. I say human natures. There are many successful ways to be human. There's these commonalities and these patterns. We better know what they are. But actually, there's much more variation and much more interesting complexity 
than most people think. And what I do in this book is sort of set, set you up. What's culture? What's evolution? You know, what are the basic tools you need? Philosophical, biological, historical, to, to talk about three topics, race, racism, sex, gender, and aggression, right? Because we have like just light, light, light casual topics. Yeah, the light, you know, <laughs> just fun. But these are so important because we have horrible problems with racism, right? Let's just take the United States, right? And those are stemmed from or tightly correlated to radical misunderstandings of human biological variation and cultural history. So if you can clean some of that up about what is human natures in the context of biological variation and capacities and things like that, then a lot becomes clearer, not simpler, but clearer. And you can understand better when it comes to sex gender, the whole idea that, you know, what reproductive organs you have predicts everything about you. That's simply wrong. But reproductive organs and their biology are very important. So how do you navigate this contemporary moment where people are losing their minds over this stuff? without even the most basic understanding of the biology and the history of sex gender, right? So, so clearing that up, I think, is really important. And then finally, the aggression, right? This whole Hobbesian notion of, you know, strip away culture and we're all aggressive, Jekyll and Hyde, you know, whatever people say, even people say, oh, it's not really like that. People believe that. They really think, especially men, right, at their heart, are just all about competition and fighting and aggression. So let's ask the question, the science is there, the biology is there, the psychology is there, the data are there. What are humans in aggression like? What, what's the pattern? What's going on? And the outcome in the context of race, sex, and aggression is that, yeah, there's some bad stuff. There's a lot of great stuff. It's super complicated, but none of it correlates with the basic simplistic assumptions that we have in racism, sexism, and this idea of a natural violence. So... Not that all those things aren't possible, right? We know because we're living them right now, right? Humans can be the most violent, the most racist, the most sexist things on the planet. And at the same time, we can also be the opposite of all those things. How is that possible? What is it about human natures, about human biology and human history that allows us to do that? And that's what this book is about because I'm just frustrated with the conversation right now. I, when I wrote it more than a day, 15 years ago, 12 years ago, whatever, I was frustrated then and I thought, here, this is it. You know, I'll do this book. And here we are a decade later it's like worse. Things are worse. So, you know, I added another, you know, 120 plus citations, revised a bunch of stuff to, to, to speak to specific current issues and say, look, people, we have knowledge about this. Let's just try a little bit harder to understand this complexity because we can do better. We can do a lot better. But I think in your other work, it makes clear what you're up against, right? Because people don't hold those beliefs because they've examined the, the scientific evidence that they hold those beliefs because they're really fundamentally about meaning making, right? And this is how people's beliefs about gender is are really more about how they're trying to make sense of the world and, you know, how they're trying to find meaning in the world and less about what they honestly believe the scientific evidence. But what they honestly right? know, right? And so, so this is why I'm, I'm all about poking the bear, right? In this kind of context and say, hey, you know, let's, Let's actually have a conversation about this. I, I'm, I, I say at the beginning of the book, I don't want people to agree with me or even to believe what I say. I want them to understand. I, I just want to, I want the conversation to be better because I know that if we're going to change anything, the conversations have to be much better. Conversations right now in the US are, part of my language, but they're crap. I mean, they're just misinformed, superficial, like dichotomous. It's, it's really bad right now. And so what I'm trying to do is say like, look, if you want to have a conversation, there's better places to start. Here's a bunch of stuff that will help that. Um, it's idealistic and optimistic, but I am 
you know, I love humans. I've studied millions of years of human evolution. Because of that, in spite of all the bad that's going on right now, I remain optimistic. And so the book's optimistic in the sense that, you know, we can't have better conversations. We might as well give it a shot. Well, I think there are people that want to have a better conversation and they're going to be the audience for this book. So thanks so much for joining me, Augustine. Latest book is Why We Believe. And don't forget the creative spark, which uh, leads up to it. And Race, Monogamy, and Other Lies, new edition out. Talk to you again sometime soon. Thanks. Thanks so much. Anytime. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Thank you.